Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 50, The End of an Era. Last time, we covered the climactic showdown of the Second Punic War. Today, we will see how Hannibal tried to pick up the broken pieces left in the wake of Carthage's defeat. Following their decisive loss at Zama, the Carthaginians understandably found themselves in political turmoil. A humiliating peace treaty had been forced upon the city, leaving her bereft of her fleet, her autonomy, and, perhaps most painful of all to a financially exhausted state. She now owed a massive indemnity of 10,000 talents to be paid to Rome over the next 50 years. Not only had she been stripped of her overseas empire, now Carthage could not even defend herself from naked aggression without Rome's approval, a fact which would soon be brutally driven home by the increasingly brazen encroachments of Massinissa and his rising Numidian kingdom. The Barkid majority had suffered the defections of a steady stream of senators until it finally collapsed in 202 BC, doubtless to the joy of Hanno the Great. Even so, the old foe of Hamilcar's sons could not capitalize on his enemy's spectacular fall from grace. Perhaps Hanno's pessimistic warnings had soured his political prospects, even though they had proven true. Or perhaps Hannibal still held enough sway in the popular imagination to resist Hanno's bid for power. Hannibal had, after all, been far and away the best general of the war, besides Scipio Africanus, and he would remain the only Carthaginian whose record was relatively untarnished, even in defeat. Whatever the reason, the government, bereft of strong leadership, now fractured. With the Safites and the Council of Elders running various portions of the executive, the Council of 104 controlling aspects of the judiciary, and the popular assembly of the people still retaining their right, courtesy of the pre-war Barkid reforms, to cast a deciding vote on important matters that might arrive. Although these resemble in passing three quote-unquote branches of a modern republic, Ancient institutions often lack clear parameters on how to interact with one another. Thus, one branch would take precedence over another, depending on the crisis at hand. Or, in Carthage's current case, they would each pursue their own disparate interests, often to the detriment of the state as a whole. Despite the inroads into their power by the popular assembly, the oligarchs retained much of the financial control of the state especially through their dominance of the tax bureaucracy and the Council of 104. The latter alone had the right to adjudicate bribery and embezzlement charges, a power which conveniently allowed them to prosecute their enemies while covering up their own financial irregularities. Combined with their lifetime appointments, they were hardly accountable to the public. Although the Council of 104 made a resurgence in the aftermath of the Second Punic War, Hannibal remained firmly outside of their grasp. He seems to have spent the years following the humiliation of Zama in command of large numbers of his veterans, whom he kept occupied planting massive olive groves. By 196 BC, though, Hannibal had decided to stage his political comeback, standing for election as Safit and easily besting the opposition. Once in power, he proved decisive as ever. Always an outsider to the aristocratic class to which he belonged, his first attack was on the Council of 104. 
He announced an audit of public finances, and when the magistrate in charge of the treasury refused to cooperate, Hannibal had the man arrested and charged before the popular assembly. Not content with this lone example, Hannibal then proposed a law which radically remade the age-old Council of 104. No longer would its members hold lifetime appointments. Now they would serve single one-year terms elected by the populace, and no one could serve consecutive terms. In a single stroke, Hannibal broke the power of that august body before which even generals trembled, and in the elections which followed, it is likely that he further solidified his power base with new judges who owed their election to his reform efforts. With this inconvenience out of the way, Hannibal moved forward with his sweeping review of Carthage's financial records. What he found confirmed the quote-unquote open secret of the past years. Magistrates had either squandered government resources through incompetence or embezzled them through a variety of ingenious methods, leaving the state on the verge of bankruptcy. Public finance had grown so dire that in 199 BC, 50 of the 200 talents sent to Rome as indemnity payments were found to have been corrupted with base metals. The humiliated Carthaginian delegation had to borrow the difference from Roman moneylenders at a high interest rate. Following this debacle, state officials proposed new taxes to keep up with the Roman indemnity. Upon completion of his audit, however, Hannibal presented before the populace the encouraging fact that no new taxes would be needed at all, provided that the misplaced money was recovered and replaced. Although likely raising his status with the commoners to starry heights, these further reforms ruined many noble families, who began to plot for the downfall of this living legend in their midst. Fault lines had appeared even before the war had ended. During peace deliberations, a senator in the Council of Elders rose to protest against the treaty. Happening to be present at the time, an impatient Hannibal proceeded to manhandle the man off the stage, creating a scandal for which he soon had to apologize. Livy has him saying, quote, I was nine years old when I left you, and after 36 years I have returned. Destiny, both personal and public, since boyhood, has taught me all a soldier should know, and I think I have learned my lesson well. But it is left to you to train me in the rights, laws, and usages of the city and the forum. End quote. Although his apology sufficed to smooth over the matter, the rough deportment and haughty impatience of a general never left him. It was clear that, for all his many merits, Hannibal lacked the grace, training, and familiarity with Carthaginian centers of power that his father and brother-in-law Hasdrubal had enjoyed. Having left as a child, he was more a foreigner than a metropolitan son of Carthage, a Hellenistic warrior king who now found himself out of place in a peacetime republic. For all his talk, Hannibal also did not seem overly inclined to curb his caustic manners. When raising the first indemnity payment proved burdensome to the exhausted city, the senators wept and lamented their fate in the Council of Elders. Meanwhile, Hannibal laughed, and when an ally of Hanno, Hasdrubal the Kid, rebuked him for delighting in the suffering that he himself had caused, Hannibal coolly replied, quote, the time to weep was when our arms were taken from us, our ships were burnt, and we were forbidden foreign wars. That was when we received our death blow. 
end quote. However true his words, it did not win him many friends among the elites. Nonetheless, his populist reforms rendered him, for the moment, immune to their plots, and under Hannibal's decisive leadership, Carthage enjoyed a remarkably fast recovery. The loss of Sardinia, Corsica, and Sicily in the first half of the 3rd century BC had led to a rapid expansion of cultivation in North Africa, a development that Hanno and his cohorts actively encourage while the Barcads have been conquering Spain. Now, finally unshackled from the parasitic tax collectors and the security demands of empire, the Carthaginian economy exploded. A year after the treaty, Carthage was able to supply the Roman army with 400,000 bushels of corn. In 191 BC, she offered Rome 500,000 bushels of wheat and an equal amount of barley. By the time of Rome's confrontation with Macedon 30 years later, in 171 BC, Carthage could afford to send a million bushels of corn and 500,000 of barley to the legions. Simultaneously, she began making wine in large quantities, outproducing the famous Campanian vineyards and running a vigorous trade surplus. Ironically, it was these Italian markets which served as the primary destination for Carthaginian foodstuffs, directly contributing to her economic recovery. Bolstered by this influx of cash, the Carthaginians began ambitious building projects in the capital, including new residential quarters and an expansion of the port. All in all, Carthage soon ran record surpluses to the point that in 192 BC, she could offer to settle the entire outstanding Roman indemnity, equivalent to 48 million denarii, 40 years early. Predictably, Rome did not view her mortal rival's recovery favorably. Carthage's rich countryside, which had not suffered severely even during Scipio's invasion, likely drew further ire when compared with the ravaged farms of Italy. With her eyes turned eastward against the successor kingdoms, though, there was little she could do at the moment to check Carthage's return. Hannibal's enemies in Carthage, however, did everything in their power to bring Rome's avenging hand down upon the Barcid general. Reports surfaced in the Senate that Hannibal had been in contact with the Seleucid king Antiochus III, who reigned over an empire which stretched from the shores of Greece to modern Afghanistan. Whether Hannibal actually was in contact with Antiochus is uncertain. He certainly had modes, means, and opportunity, given that Antiochus ruled Carthage's motherland, ancient Phoenicia. But the Senate grew alarmed at the potential collusion between their two great rivals. In 195 BC, envoys were dispatched to deal with Hannibal, despite the curious fact that no less a man than Scipio Africanus defended his old foe against the charges. As we shall see, Scipio remained surprisingly pro-Hannibal following the peace. He also possessed the autocratic streak of a supreme commander, and like Hannibal, he often clashed with the political establishment. When the envoys arrived in Carthage, their allies warned them that Hannibal's popularity in the capital was so great among the masses that the Romans needed to conceal the real purpose of their mission. Hannibal had been warned beforehand, though, and fearing assassination, rode to the gates with two attendants to flee the city. He would never return. In a twist of fate, 
Rome's persecution drove Hannibal directly into the waiting arms of Antiochus. After receiving a hero's welcome among his fellow Phoenicians at Tyre, Hannibal made his way to Ephesus to meet the great king, quote-unquote. Despite the Romans' nightmares, the feared Carthaginian-Seleucid alliance never materialized. Although he ruled over the greatest of the Diadochi, Antiochus was still undecided whether he wished to take the rising Roman power head-on. Rome's legions had thrashed the vaunted Macedonian phalanx under Philip at the Battle of Cynocephali, but her increasingly aggressive and interventionist foreign policy threatened Seleucid interests in Greece. Still, the presence of Rome's greatest foe at his court caused Antiochus considerable anxiety, the more so since Hannibal's constant advice was, according to Livy, quote, that the war should be conducted on Italian soil. Italy would furnish both supplies and men to a foreign foe. But, Hannibal argued, if that country remained undisturbed and Rome were free to employ the strength and resources of Italy beyond its frontiers, no monarch, no nation, could meet her on equal terms. End quote. In conjunction with Antiochus's theoretical invasion of Italy, Hannibal proposed raising Carthage in open revolt. To prove the soundness of his scheme, he dispatched a secret messenger to Carthage to contact his Barcid allies. Upon arrival, his designs were almost immediately betrayed by the Council of Elders, who sent a detailed report to Rome denouncing the messenger and disclaiming any responsibility for Hannibal's plots. Whatever Antiochus may have thought about Hannibal's plan, the messenger's dismal return cooled whatever ardor he might have had. Needless to say, the 100 ships and 11,000 men Hannibal had requested were not forthcoming, and the Punic general found himself increasingly relegated to the fringes of the Seleucid court. When war did break out against Rome in 192 BC, Hannibal must have been bitterly disappointed by Antiochus's decision to send him, not to the army, but to a sideshow in Phoenicia. In command of a small squadron of ships, Hannibal participated in a minor naval engagement given the somewhat extravagant name of the Battle of the Eurymedon. Despite his Phoenician heritage, Hannibal received the worst of the encounter against a joint Roman-Rhodian fleet. His bitterness doubtless was enhanced due to the presence of Carthaginian warships in the Roman fleet. Returning to the court, Hannibal found Antiochus in gleeful spirits after reviewing his great army, 72,000 men if the sources are to be believed, intent on seeking out the Romans for decisive battle. Seeing the old general, Antiochus asked if Hannibal thought his army would be enough for the Romans, to which the Carthaginian replied, quote, quite enough for the Romans, however greedy they are, End quote. Curiously enough, when the two armies met at Magnesia, both of the generals from Zama were present on the sidelines. Scipio Africanus had followed his brother, Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus, to bolster his position as consul and general of the 30,000 legionaries under his command. In the battle which followed, the Romans smashed the great king, proving once and for all that for all its outward grandeur, the Seleucid Empire was but a hollow crown. In the subsequent peace treaty, 
Antiochus agreed to expatriate Hannibal to Rome for justice. Wily as ever, Hannibal escaped to another foreign court. The five years which followed were the saddest in the great general's career. Fleeing from one eastern kingdom to the next, he eked out an existence among various petty princelings, allegedly hatching further schemes against Rome. Even as a broken man, his mere presence conjured up images of resistance to the encroaching power of the Romans, and his very name symbolized the time when the world saw that Rome was mortal. Perhaps it was for this reason that the Romans continued to demand his death. Internal politics within the Senate also made the destruction of Hannibal a top priority. As mentioned earlier, Hannibal's one-time nemesis, Scipio Africanus, had ironically emerged as the old Carthaginian's greatest champion, arguing that he was no longer a threat as a fugitive. Scipio continued to maintain remarkably friendly relations with Hannibal in exile. In a famous anecdote, Scipio and Hannibal had met at Ephesus while Scipio was on a diplomatic mission, and the two fell to conversing as old friends. Scipio took the opportunity to ask Hannibal who he considered the greatest general of all time. Taking up the challenge, Hannibal named Alexander the Great first, Pyrrhus of Epirus second, and himself third. Livy continues, quote, Then Scipio broke into a laugh and said, What would you say if you had defeated me? Then beyond doubt, Hannibal replied, I should place myself before both Alexander and Pyrrhus, and before all other generals. Scipio, not expecting such praise, was delighted at the compliment, and these and many other instances showed the friendly esteem he held for Hannibal. End quote. For all his talk of the grand old days, Scipio's star was also setting. A lover of Greek culture and arts, he offended many in Rome by importing and promoting Hellenic customs from the East, the most formidable of his opponents, the notorious Cato the Elder cited this as one of the most significant corrupting influences in Roman life, replacing the old virtues with new fads. Merciless, dogmatic, and brilliant, Cato fought the increasing Hellenization in Rome with a vicious fanaticism that would later prove fatal to Carthage as well. Following the Seleucid War, Cato and his allies accused the Scipio brothers of misappropriating funds during the Magnesia campaign. As his brother was producing the campaign records, Scipio Africanus haughtily tore them up in the very chamber of the Senate, demanding, according to Polybius, quote, How could the Senate ask for the items of the expenditure of these 3,000 talents, and yet no longer ask for an account of how and by whose agency the 15,000 talents which they received from Antiochus came into the treasury? nor how it is that they have become masters of Asia, Libya, and Iberia. End quote. Shamed by his words, the Senate let the matter drop. Although temporarily defeated, Cato would renew his political persecution by forcing Scipio to suffer the indignity of being publicly prosecuted for allegedly taking bribes from Antiochus. While unusual to our eyes, Rome did not possess a government-run criminal justice system. Instead, most prosecutions were instigated by a notable private citizen against a defendant. When called to defend himself, Scipio dismissively replied that, quote, 
It ill became the Roman people to listen to accusations against P. Cornelius Scipio, to whom his accusers owed it that they had the power of speech at all. End quote. Once again, the prosecution backed down. While his overwhelming sense of pride and self-confidence may have been an asset when his back was against the wall, it did not endear Scipio to his fellow nobles. It is startling to see how similar Scipio and Hannibal acted once they had returned to private life. Both failed to transfer the skills of a battlefield commander to the more ethereal realm of politics. Both believed themselves to be autocrats in republican systems of government, finding themselves far more at ease in the presence of chieftains, kings, and dictators than in the jostling senate chambers of their home cities. The downfall of both would also be eerily similar. Shortly after his acquittal, Scipio left Rome for political exile in Campania. A year later, he was dead. Although some at Rome still thought him toothless, the departure of his powerful defender sealed Hannibal's fate. In 183 BC, the same year of Scipio's death, Titus Quintius Flamininus, conqueror of Greece and ambassador to Hannibal's current host, King Prusius of Bithynia, located in what is now northwestern Turkey, saw an opportunity to enhance his reputation by destroying Rome's greatest living foe. Cowing Prusius with threats and demands, Flamininus berated the king into sending guards to capture Hannibal at his residence. According to Plutarch, the old Carthaginian, wary as ever, had devised no less than seven escape tunnels in the event of treachery, but he found these all blocked by Bithynian guards. Brought to bay at last, Hannibal mixed the poison that he always carried with him, and taking the cup, said, quote, Let us ease the Romans of their continual dread and care, who think it long and tedious to await the death of a hated old man. End quote. Hannibal's death received a mixed reaction in Rome. Plutarch writes that, quote, Some felt indignation against Flamininus for it, blaming his officiousness as well as his cruelty, who when there was nothing to urge it, out of mere appetite for distinction to have it said that he had caused Hannibal's death, sent him to his grave when he was now like a bird that in its old age has lost its feathers, and, incapable of flying, is let alone to live tamely without molestation. End quote. Others, however, rejoiced and defended the act with alacrity. These, quote, looked upon a living Hannibal as a fire, which only wanted blowing to become a flame. For when he was in the prime of life, it was not his body nor his hand that had been so formidable, but his consummate skill and experience, together with his innate malice and rancor against the Roman name things which do not impair with age, end quote. The deaths of these two giants of their people closed the final chapter of the Second Punic War. Neither would be buried in his home city, Hannibal being laid to rest in Bithynia, Scipio being buried, upon his own strict orders, in Campania, with the bitter epithet of, quote, ungrateful fatherland, you will not even have my bones. End quote. In an age of great men, these two towered above all others, their lives and fates intertwined until the very end. One-time champions of their peoples, 
Each outlived his usefulness to the states which cast each aside in turn, and each died thankless deaths far from home. Hannibal himself remains one of history's greatest what-ifs. Roman schoolboys would debate for centuries whether he should have marched on Rome after Cannae. Generals millennia later admire and crave the total annihilation achieved by Hannibal's army, and even the general public who have never heard of Carthage still remember the mighty elephants crossing the Alps. The threat he posed to Rome, as great or greater than the sack of the Gauls in her formative years, scarred the Roman psyche for years to come. She would emerge the undisputed mistress of the Mediterranean, one who would brook no challenge lest, as mothers would whisper to their crying children, Hannibal ad Portus would return. As we will discuss next time, the Rome Hannibal left would be a relentless, merciless, and dauntless force in the world. For his character, his achievements, and his unintended legacy, Hannibal Barca deserves to be remembered. He was, in every sense of the word, a great man. With the passing of her greatest son, Carthage's end, and the end of this story, rapidly approaches. Next time, we will examine the Rome of Cato and the last days of Carthage. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>